0: This morning we continue our study in Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. And our text for this morning is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now brothers and sisters, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had already come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that God is or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders." And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because of God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and hope by grace comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good work. This is the word of the Lord. This morning I want to focus on this passage to this church that's really going through it, and the main theme being to stand firm. The Apostles calling that church to stand firm in great times of worry, anxiety, oppression, and trials, and by extension, we are being called to stand firm. And if you're visiting this morning and you've Maybe you've not uh, uh, worshipped the church before, you're exploring Christian faith, you've come this morning, or uh, you've got a lot of questions, and you show up, and you're like, oh my goodness, is this Antichrist Sunday? What a Sunday for me to show up. This is actually tremendous, because quite often the teachings of Scripture um, that we sort of hear in the just in cultural conversation are sort of like cartoons or caricatures of uh, the depth of what the Scriptures speak, so I do think that you picked a wonderful Sunday, if that happens to be you, because you're going to get some, uh, I, I think, some real clarion with the core of what this word gospel actually means, and uh, also some insights into how uh, our God, and through his scripture, postures the church to understand our world and relate uh, to our neighbors. So we're going to go through this text, and I'm going to explore uh, three things that the apostle pulls out. And the first being the instruction to guard against being easily shaken. Secondly, the mystery of lawlessness and its corrosive effects. And then lastly, the stabilizing power of God's grace. So first, let's look at this instruction to guard against being easily shaken. So last week, I spoke at great length about the judgment of God and these sorts of things that came out in the text. I'm not going to be revisiting that this morning. It's important to the teaching, gives great context. So if if you're new and curious on those things, you can find all of our teachings on our website. I won't be going into that. But the church is confused about the return of Christ. And we just read it that somehow there's a teaching going around saying that Christ had already returned. And because they're being crushed under Rome, this is about 51 AD. They're three years away from Nero coming into power when things really get ramped up. So they're kind of relating to their life with a sense of futility. And they're worried about it. And some of them are just relating to work and they're, they're just sort of throwing their hands up. They're becoming busybodies, and that's the, the sermon for next Sunday. But this is what's going on, and uh, so the Apostle Paul wants them to not uh, become idle and not become worried and sort of succumb to all of the challenges they're going through, not to interpret uh, the trials of their life as evidence that God has abandoned them. The trials and the tribulations and the hard times and the sorrows of our life is not a commentary on God abandoning us. What the apostle is doing is he's saying actually notice notice the resilience and the faith that God's keeping power through these tribulations that they're not a commentary that God has abandoned you at all he's wanting to shift their, their their entire view that they're having on their suffering that God is with them in their suffering in fact that their resilience is evidence that God's dwelling within them in their suffering, and that in the end he's not going to he's not going to permit evil to prevail and in the end everyone who Shifts the world in unloving and uncaring and unwise directions. Gets away with it. That doesn't happen in the end. He's trying to shift their perspective. That you don't have to relate to your sorrows and oppression with a sense of futility. Because in the end, God is just. And his and his just judgment brings deliverance. And it brings hope. And it brings freedom. And it brings renewal. And so he's trying to do a big shift here. Because they're freaked out about this teaching. And uh, this teaching about... Christ already returning. It's creating futility here. But century after century after century, millennia, here we are two millennia after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this idea of, well, maybe he had already returned, led to lots of, not just false teaching, but also sort of liberal interpretations of the return of Christ. So, for example, if you look, well, Christ is not going to literally return. It's not going to be a historical thing that happens in the future. Christ returns by, you know, it's just a metaphor for his teaching living on in our hearts. As the church just continues to love Jesus, love their neighbor, and keep the teachings of Christ. Then Christ has returned in that way. And it's sort of, over the time, become very sort of weak in its teaching. But what the Apostle is doing, and what I want to make clear here today, is that, no, actually, there are things that God has done that he has irreversibly written himself into human history. And the return of Christ will be historical, event in the future in the same way that his birth, the crucifixion, and his resurrection, that empty tomb that history records, are all historical truths. His return will also be a future historical truth. And so that has a grounding power for the church in the midst of the suffering that they're going through. That it's not just some sort of liberal metaphor in uh, in way of thinking of perhaps, you know, if we just keep the teachings of Jesus and love our neighbor, then that's Christ returning. No. So he makes a request here in the beginning and he says we ask you to not be easily shaken. Can you imagine asking such a thing as as the modern person. I'd like to ask you not to be so easily shaken. How dare you? How dare you ask me not to be shaken? How dare you not ask me to? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand. You don't live my life experience, on and on and on. The moder- the, th- this offends our modern sensibilities. How dare you ask me not to be easily shaken? But he's not doing this in, a, uh, in an overbearing and angry way. It's, this is all motivated by great love. In the same way that as a parent, when, when a toddler falls over and you know they're going to be okay, but they're not sure they're going to be okay, or the toddler's in the pool and they they've got their water wings on, they jump in and and the water goes over their face and they come up and they're freaking out. They're looking to you as a parent. They're looking to your facial expression to to get the cue, am I okay or am I not okay? And when you look at the child that fell on the ground or falls in the pool and you go, hey, it's okay, you're gonna be okay. Come Come here, you're gonna be fine. That is a stabilizing effect. I'm gonna ask you not to be easily shaken. I've got you. God's got you. But if when the child looks at the parent, when they fall on the ground, and they fall in the pool, and the parent is going, my baby! Ah! The child's like, I should freak out. There is reason for alarm. So this is the tone the apostle is taking with the church. I'm going to ask I'm going to ask you not to be easily shaken by Rome and the impression all things are going on. It seems absurd to ask that. But again, as people who trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it makes sense. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it makes no sense. The request is is ludicrous. But we don't believe in a missing body theory. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They spent time with him for 40 days. The Apostle Paul saw him. So the basis of such a seemingly ludicrous request is we believe in the resurrection from the dead. And because that's true, and God's justice is true, and the renewal of all things is true... And perfect deliverance and, and, and joy is true. Because all these things are true, I'm going to ask you not to be so easily shaken by what's going on. This is his tone. And there's a very practical way for the church to not be shaken. And I'm going to get, I'm going to, get to that at the end of the teaching. So let's move on to um, the next thing. Or sorry, before I move on to the next thing, you just notice that he says in verse 2, I'm not asking you not to be easily shaken because there's this teaching going around as if it was from us. And he's trying to nip this thing in the bud because for some reason... Uh, Terrible teaching or false teaching or bad news. It spreads amazingly, doesn't it? It's incredible. And he's trying to get in front of it. How is it that the church is liking and retweeting and forwarding and smashing the the subscribe button and hitting the bell on this? How is it happening? So the Apostle Paul is coming to them and he's saying, listen, um, meditating on our crisis is the way into instability. Uh, Meditating on God's goodness is the way out. Constantly ruminating on... Again, the modern mind is, how dare you? How dare you tell me not? You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand my mental health challenges. You don't understand my physical challenges. You don't understand what I'm going through with my family. It's not that those things aren't real or important. or th- there's not, It's not that there's not a gravitas to our sorrows. But the reality is that the Apostle Paul is like, I gotta get you, I've got to get you out of this spiral. And you've got to start to meditate on different things. You have to stop listening to yourself. And you have to start listening to the goodness and the care and the love and the grace of God. So we're going to get to that, how they can practically not be shaken. But notice that he's instructing them to do it. Let's move on. To the mystery of lawlessness and its corrosive effects. There's this, the the mystery of lawlessness in the Greek, mysterion tas animas. And uh, mysterion, where obviously we get the word mystery, but it's mysterious teaching or mysterious doctrine. This is the mysterion. And he's and uh, it's this unknowable doctrine of being without law. Who is this person of lawlessness? Who is this man of lawlessness? The I- whole idea is to say, well, who's to say what's right and wrong? To be without law. So we don't want to think of lawlessness as, well, I know what the law is, but I'm a rebel and I'm not keeping it. That's not lawless. Lawless is anti, the anti namas, that uh, there is no law. And so this is pretty significant stuff. And that, that that position of, well, maybe there is no law, it all leads, of course, to wayward worship, wayward way of living. Because as human beings, we're going to center our lives around something. And so to be anti uh, the wisdom of God's way of flourishing, to worship Him at the center, to center our lives around Him, means inevitably we center around something else. And, and that can manifest in terrible things, but also maybe not so terrible things, subtle things. But the point is that it all ends in futility. Like the call to worship this morning that David read from Ecclesiastes. If in the end there is no resurrection, and then there is a sense that it's all ending into futility. So the Apostle Paul's trying to get ahead of this. And so he says, I want to talk to you about this Mysterion, which sounds like something that's going to stream on Disney+. Plus. Mysterion. Uh, this mystery of iniquity. This, this man who sets himself in God's... Up in God's temple, and there's been various circles of Christianity where it's been possible to, or it's been popular to sort of fixate on this anti-law, anti-Christ figure, like it is one specific person that's going to show up and and uh, you know lead the church into apostasy. Uh, I don't think that's a very helpful way to think about it because the way in which the Apostle writes, not just here, but also uh, in other texts, the Apostle John, for example, 1 John 2, 2 John 7, they talk about it as not just like one individual, uh, it could be perhaps one individual at a time, but it, essentially many individuals, but even more so than that, an ideology where it is to be against the ways of God, to be against Christ, to reject Christ, this this concept of being anti and it all sort of leads to uh, uh, it all sort of leads to some of this conspiracy theory stuff, which is probably unhelpful um, for the church to repeat the problem in Thessalonica by fixating over, you know, looking at the world with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and saying, "Oh my goodness, if only we knew the 17 people who were controlling the world." Imagine. The plans we could thwart, you know, and they sort of spend all of this energy. Look at all these photos. We've lined them all up. They're holding our hands in the same position. What does this mean? Um, what a glorious distraction from what we uh, ought to be centering our lives around uh, living into the imitation of Christ and being ministers of the gospel and loving our city and bringing flourishing to our workplaces and our neighborhoods. I mean, it's just such an insane distraction. That's why this second letter of Thessalonians is good to be read in light of the first one, which you'll remember the Apostle Paul says, look... Christ's return is like a thief in the night, a.k.a. you're not going to figure it out. Put the newspaper down. Stop trying to stop with the pins and and the yarn. Leave it alone. Just live uh, this life and don't let it take you into this place of sort of futility, being a busybody, which of course is next week's sermon. So this can lead to uh, this sort of stuff. And the point being that this... this, uh, antichrist antinomian man of lawlessness this this figure they set themselves up in the temple of god the text says right so it's not so much that you're setting yourself up in the temple precincts. this is the person that sits in the place of claiming to be a deity claiming to be god this is a common idea that's the og idea in genesis 3 that was the original temptation you don't need this relationship did god say that you don't need god be god Eat the fruit, fill yourself, find your own life of fulfillment apart from the creator. You don't need a creator, or the modern uh, conversation might be. There is no creator. Just you are, you create, you curate your own life, sense of meaning, purpose, value. Curate that. There is no divine law. Live anti-namas. Just create your own law. And 20 years after Paul wrote this, Rome, historically, sacks. Jerusalem destroys the temple 70, right we're in 8051 20 years later Rome is setting up in the temple right emperor worship is on the rise they believe that the emperors were divine emperor worship was the largest growing uh you know religion if you will and uh, I mean at that point so you could point to that and say oh yeah there it is but in every generation there's always been whether it's people of uh, politics or power in other ways that have sort of risen up and Sort of asserted ways of life that are against the wisdom, the love, the grace, the flourishing of God. So it's not trying to pin this down to, to uh, pin this to one person, but the point being that at the time that Paul is writing this, there was actually very few people who thought, "Yeah, there's no law." At the time, in 8051, everybody would have nobody was saying you have to define what's right for you. Everybody was, at that point would have been saying, well, this ideology means these are the values or my family is from this particular region and we have a particular heritage and traditions and these are the values. But nobody, was, nobody really, as rampant as today, was saying, no, 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 no. Whatever your tradition, tribe, heritage, you know, uh, you know pagan god you're worshipping, whatever it is that you're up to, none of those things matter. The individual." has to decide for themselves what is true and right, and right. I mean, that's not how the world operated in eighty fifty one. 51. Most people were aligned someplace. So he's speaking about this lawlessness, this person that just sets himself in a place to say, I'm God. But as moderns and for quite some time, that it, it isn't uncommon to just say, it doesn't matter where you came from and what the traditions are. You've got to just forge, forge your truth um, for yourself. So it would be very common today is to think this way. And so uh, in uh, C.S. Lewis' work, The Abolition of Man, he talks about the problem of this moral relativism by saying that the, if, if the subjective individu- individualistic concepts can be discarded or, or modified as per our whims, that could unfold in a lot of ways in the world that are unwise and unloving and turn a lot of things sideways. So the reason why I chose the term corrosive effects of this lawlessness Is because when something is being corroded, it's being eaten from the inside. Some corrosion is very obvious, but other corrosion, it's like, well, this thing looks okay, but you can poke your finger through it. There's no strength and stability there. I I I took my uh, car to an auto body uh, specialist a couple weeks ago because I had some rust on a rocker panel, and I'm like, this is an old vehicle. I don't want this to get. uh, I don't want this to eat the car out from the inside. So I took it. He takes one look at it. It's a tiny little rust bubble on the rocker panel. He says, I don't want to touch this. That's into your jack point. It's into the frame. It's into the whole thing. The car's gonna crack in half. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. Now I know that those sorts of things can be true. I'm like, how deep is this corrosion? So I go into a garage with my friend. I grab a grinder. I start grinding it off. And sure enough, I grind off the, the surface rust and there's a little hole there. Corrosion just eats things out from the inside. That wasn't what he described. Thankfully. But the point being that it's easy... The church has always, through history, looked out at the most corrosive thing and said, the Antichrist! Many times! It's still popular today. You can, you can move a lot of books. You can, you can sell... You can have massive crowds if you... Cause that's a very exciting way to talk about it. It's less exciting to say the corrosive... The corrosion of sin in the world is extensive. It's tainted everybody. Some of it is very obvious. Some of it less so. Some of it seems tremendously damaging. Other people just sort of sit in the place of God and they're just, you know, they're very kind and loving people. It's not like Christians have the market on kindness and love and care. Christianity is not a morality game. It's not like, well, if you become a Christian, you've leveled up and you're more moral and caring and kind than your neighbor. Not necessarily, That's not why we're Christians. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We trust in him. There's forgiveness for uh, our sin. But not only that, we believe in the renewal of all things. We live into the glory of our Savior. Yes, we want to put off our sin. Yes, we want to reject the corrosion. But at the end of the day, we're saved by his grace and trusting and believing in who Jesus Christ is. It's not just a matter of, it's not a morality game. And so uh, this problem of this lawlessness is at work the Apostle says, in 51 AD. It's manifested quite a bit globally over the last 2,000 years, and so things look quite differently now. than it did at the time that he was writing this. Last thing I'll say on this uh, would be that, uh, and I've quoted um, Dr. Arthur Leff before, and this might be helpful for those of you exploring Christian faith, and you're like, I'm wondering about who Jesus Christ is, and I'm wondering about Christianity, and perhaps this... This thought from this, uh, this professor, he's a law professor at Duke. He wrote a letter, he wrote a, an essay back in 79 called Unspeakable Ethics on a Natural Law. And here's what he said. He said, if there is no God, then there's no way to say that one action is moral and another is immoral. But only, I don't like this. I don't prefer this. If that's the case, then who gets the right to put their subjective, arbitrary, moral feelings into the law? You might say that a majority has the right to make the law, but are you saying that majority has the right to vote to exterminate the minority? And he ends his his essay like this. As things are now, everything is up for grabs. But nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as good and evil. Altogether now, says who? God help us. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul says that God will send a delusion. God will send this delusion on those that reject the truth of Jesus Christ, of his resurrection, of who he is. God's going to send this delusion. And it's important, again, to realize, follow the language and the grammar and the structure of the letter, that God is not forcing a delusion. He's sending a delusion in response to a rejection. They've... Rejected and to receive the love of the truth. And so now they're going to receive a strong delusion. Uh, it would be like the common conversations around God's judgment. I got into this last week when we were talking about God's judgment. Is Many people have the idea that it's like, here I am minding my own business in a restaurant, enjoying myself with my family and my friends. And then the chef is in the kitchen and he looks out and he sees me sitting there. And then he sends me a plate of rotten food. I didn't ask for this. I'm just, here I am doing my own thing and I didn't want this and this chef has sent me this rotten food. And that's how people understand the judgment of God. In texts like this, it says God sends a delusion. Oh yeah, the chef just sent me this rotten thing. But the, the greater analogy, the more accurate analogy to this text and others would be, no, that's not what's happening. It's that I walked into the restaurant and written all over the ceiling and the chairs and the floor and everywhere is the menu a menu that will enable my body to flourish. It's written everywhere. I can look in a telescope or a microscope. I can do, use all manner of reason to see the fingerprints of the divine chef everywhere in the restaurant. And then I sit down and the waiter comes and the waiter speaks to me and tells me what's on the menu and tells me that they're serving Christ a la carte, sola <laughs> gratia, it's all on the menu, the grace alone. And, and then not only does that not only does that uh, server come, but many servers come for millennia. They're called prophets, by the way, if you're tracking with this, and they're just continually, repeatedly trying to point everybody to the menu that is written across the ceiling of the restaurant. And then they pick up the, and then I pick up the menu and I look at it, and there I see it there. And then I say, mm, yes, I see here Christ a la carte, solo Christus. Gross. Um, you know, I'll have the deconstructed me first platter. Thank you very much. And then the the chef sends the rotten food that I ordered that I want. And then I, I receive it. My wayward appetite ordered it. It's delusional, but it's what I want. And so the text says, yeah, so God sends the delusion on the basis of the fact that they have rejected this and some of the folks that have grown up in the reform traditions are squirming right now going oh man you better get to God's sovereignty relax guys I'm trying to save myself some emails so yes of course God is sovereign but when we understand God's sovereignty God's sovereignty is not Greek fatalism that just decides things and human agency is gone I know there's writers that wrote that way I'm not convinced that's very helpful God's sovereignty, it means that we live under a sovereign. He is in complete authority. If he doesn't move, we can't be saved because we can't, like Arminius said in history, have a prevenient grace. Where we just wake up one day and out of our own humanity, out of our own innocence, we are able to choose God. No, when we say God is sovereign, we're saying we desperately need his grace to move first. And the good news of the gospel is that's what he's been doing for millennia. That's what he's been doing from the jump. He's been moving first. That's what he's done since Genesis 3. When humanity, when humanity deserved immediate destruction for divine treason, they received, in a scandalous contradiction of what they deserved, him covering their sin and covering them from the job. And so, yes, God is sovereign, and yes, he must move first, and yes, he has. And it's in the words of uh, theologian Leon Morris, in respect to God sending the delusion on these that have rejected, the truth of Jesus, he says those very acts in which they expressed their defiance were the vehicle of their punishment. Let's move on to the final thing this morning, the stabilizing power of God's grace. So when you get to scriptures like this one in Thessalonians or the book of Revelation, which is wild and exciting apocalyptic poetry depicting... um, well, not just, the, not just the, the the end of days, but also it's sort of written in concentric circles about what God has always done and what Christ has done. And there's amazing revisitings of, like, the life of Jesus and the Gospels through poetry and revelation. So it's not linear at all, which is why moderns have difficulty... We all have difficulty reading it, because it's not linear. It's revisiting wild timelines like the X-Men franchise, thoroughly confusing everybody. But... Uh, when you get to texts like that, this great apostasy, this great falling away, is the thing that often the church fixates on. Oh man, there's a lot of people who are going to fall away. And the Bible keeps saying that. It does say that. But do you want to know what else it says? There's, there are a great many people who come to faith. Both of those things have happened. You have to hold them both together. There's a great falling away um, in sort of inherited faith, but there's a great explosion of growth of people coming to genuine faith. Here in our little corner of the world, in southern Ontario, it would seem that there is a great falling away. It would seem that way. Uh, But globally speaking, there is not a great falling away. Globally speaking, the, the growth of the church as people come to faith in God, as God continues to move through his grace... Throughout all the various countries of the world, you can track it. Um, Christianity exploded here in the Greco-Roman world and moved down into northern Africa through the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. So Greco-Roman world, northern Africa keeps moving over different seasons of church history as it explodes in Latin America, and China, Asia, all across the world. North America had their time where there was an explosion of Christianity. It came through terrible means... You know, God God has always been using uh, horrible and terrible things to draw people to his grace. Christianity came to North America through uh, colonialism, but God used it. Terrible thing that's not like him, but used it by his grace. Many came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at our particular time right now here in southern Ontario, in our lifetime, the church is not strong in Canada, not strong in America. But that's not true globally. There's two billion-ish Christians in the world. And most of them are across the pond. So we just hunker down and worship Jesus. But so we don't want to get fixated on the falling away. Because you have to remember that with the falling away is also the, the ongoing and glorious work of God. Continually drawing people from all works of life into his, uh, into his church and into his family. And so he, the apostle says in verse 13, Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. This glorious, sovereign language of of God picking these Thessalonians. Here, this tiny little church in Thessalonica getting crushed by Rome. And he's like, "God God sees you. And that's what people want when they're being crushed. Who sees me? Who sees my pain? Does anybody see me? Does my life matter? Do I just live, suffer, and then die? And then in the end, there's no justice for my injustice. And he says, no, God sees you. Because from the beginning... And so therefore... Verse 15, brothers and sisters, stand fast. The stabilizing power of God's grace, how do we stand fast? He goes on in verse 15 to say, keep the traditions. Often when we think of the traditions of our faith, of prayer, of gathering together for worship on Sundays, scripture, meditation in our homes... Some of that has been terribly tainted for some of you. Some of you have come from contexts where it's like, if I do this, I'm good. If I don't, I'm bad. If I do this, God's pleased with me. And he goes, yay, thumbs up. You read your Bible this week. And if I don't, God, Christ, goes. And goes. And we've removed it from the proper category of we have been given prayer and meditation and scripture and worship and gathering and the Lord's table as means of grace to stabilize the soul. So to the degree that you and I have rhythms of rest and worship and prayer and scripture, that is to the degree that we are able to be settled and stabilized and stand fast in trials and in hard times. To the degree that we do not do these things, do not keep the traditions, the means of grace. This is not a matter of God looking down and going, "Tisk tisk, you should have prayed this week. It's, this is the wrong categories to have We have to understand it as god 's very means of grace of giving strength and stability to his church. Do you remember some of you have been in church for a while there is a passage in Ephesians six. That says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm in the evil day. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the armor of God so that you may be able to stand. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, guarding yourself, and it goes on, into all the armor, right? This metaphor of putting on the nature of Christ. And one of the pieces of armor is peace. It's your feet shod in the gospel of peace. And it's not peace like good vibes. It's a Roman cleat, like a football cleat with spikes on the bottom, the cleats, the the feet shod so that you can stand and they would just dig their heels in so that you're not moved. And it's an image of the shield being the size of a door behind with 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 your Roman cleats on. Moving forward an inch at a time, going through terrible things. Terrible, horrific things. Fiery arrows being shot at us. We look like flaming porcupines. All of us are flammable as we go through life. Having having trials and things come our way. But the point is that to stand firm, to have the peace. Peace that is not just out, good vibes. It's like a stabilizing force. What Paul wants the Thessalonians and us by extension to be able to have, it comes through He says in verse 15, keep the traditions. Those traditions being of the worship, of the prayer. That rhythm, we need to have those rhythms in our lives so that we can stand fast. So that we're not easily shaken. Because life is like an octagon. And we just get in there and we have a plan and then we get punched in the mouth and then we don't have a plan anymore. And we need the stabilizing force of God's grace. It's like an anchor. Verse 16 says that he has loved us He's brought comfort to our hearts, everlasting consolation. In the Greek, the word is certainty, where hope, it's not fingers crossed, it's a sense of resilience. And as I close with this final line in verse 17, that we would be established. In the Greek, the established is starizo, and starizo means to be firmly fixed. It's an architectural term that Paul chose. It means buttressed. And so a buttress in in architecture, it's an external external piece that comes to stabilize and take the weight. The buttress takes the weight, bears the weight. Paul says, we need to be established. The church needs to be established. I need something that is on the exterior, outside me, that is exterior, to take the weight. I can't continue to take the weight. Paul is inviting us to cast our cares on him. To find this support. Jesus borrows. Uh, or sorry Paul borrows the wisdom from Jesus. Who talked about the foundations of rock or sand. As we're building our lives. That we can be ready for every good work. The whole purpose of this. For us to live and flourish into our new humanity. And so church. May we stand fast and hold to the traditions. To which we've been taught. May our Lord Jesus Christ. And God the Father who has loved us. Give us everlasting consolation. Give us good hope by his grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word, in every good work. Let's pray.